Are we alone in the universe? Will humankind ever encounter another species we can actually speak to? While we often look to the stars for the answers to these questions, the beginning of the search for life on the final frontier is much closer to home. Beyond being able to build a rocket that can tear through a wormhole, one of the biggest hurdles to making contact with intelligent life is learning to simply communicate, starting with the creatures and machines on this planet. Matthew Battles from Berkman's Metalab has been looking into the recent history of the science of interspecies communication, and he joins us today to talk about how science has used animals and robots to better understand ourselves and our communication with extraterrestrials. So, Matthew, you've been looking into the work of a researcher named Leo Szilard. Yeah. He began his career as a physicist, and he was in the same kind of circle as Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr, uh, Werner Heisenberg. He was Hungarian in his background, came to the United States when Hitler rose to power, and became a major scientific motivator of the Manhattan Project. As many of those uh, researchers did, he had misgivings about it after the war, and uh, did a lot of writing and speaking about the dangers of nuclear annihilation. Zillard went on to a career in biophysics, but he also conceived of himself as a writer, and a fiction writer in particular. So um, one of his longest stories was called The Voice of the Dolphin. Mm. And in the story, Zillard tells about a scientific research institute, fictional scientific research institute called um, the Vienna Institute, that emerges after World War II um, as a place where scientists from the East and West can meet to share their research as a kind of Cold War, crossing the Iron Curtain kind of effort. And the first thing that the Vienna Institute announces it has done is it has solved the problem of dolphin language. It's decoded the dolphin's language, and it discovered that the dolphins are intelligent. They're brilliant, in fact. So in the story, the Vienna Institute and the dolphins, working with the dolphins, they proceed to solve some fundamental problems in genetics, in chemistry, in nuclear physics. Uh, and then eventually they start to pose to them questions about political problems, about diplomacy, human problems, mm -hmm. um, social problems. And the dolphins offer answers to those problems as well, and ultimately kind of solving the problem of the Cold War in the story. And then in the end of the story, Szilard kind of opens the possibility that, that maybe the Vienna Institute scientists never actually were in touch with the dolphins, uh, but they came up with that as a fiction. Huh. And the reason they would have done that, Zillard says in the story, is that the problem that science has in solving human problems is not that it's insufficient to solve those problems. Zillard believed very strongly in not only the method of science, whatever that might be, but the institutions of science and the institution of science itself. But he thought the problem that science faced was a kind of cultural problem because nobody could ever look at a scientist and see that person as a disinterested actor. And so when it came to, you know, problems of the natural world, people felt very comfortable working with scientists and taking their lead. But when it came to problems of politics or society, you know, the question of whose scientist are you, for whom are you working, comes to the fore immediately. So the scientists at the Vienna Institute figured they needed disinterested actors, and the dolphins could be that disinterested set of actors. And so this was the story that Zillard published in 1961, and it's inspired by both work that was happening in terms of research on dolphins and animal intelligence, but also in dialogue with broader public intellectual discussions about 
the role of science and technology in society. And when you think about that time, you know, we're talking about the time in the immediate aftermath of Sputnik, a time when people were really concerned about the kind of Promethean bargain that we had made with technology, and that Promethean bargain being really signified chiefly by nuclear technology. We continue to be worried about this, but it's an, it, you know, we are endowed with that anxiety from this period of time. And it was a period of time when people were hopeful, on the one hand, that through science and technology, we would find the means to answer that problem of global threat and real fear that we wouldn't get it done in time. And a lot of thinkers devoted themselves to this problem with, with real passion and care. The philosopher Hannah Arendt, who's most famous for the phrase, the banality of evil, writing about the Adolf Eichmann trial in Jerusalem, she wrote a book called The Human Condition, which was specifically prompted by what she saw as the promise and the peril of space travel in particular. Hannah Arendt wrote about the human condition as fundamentally tied to the earth. And in that book, she writes about political problems posed by science. And the problem for her wasn't the kind of disinterestedness of scientists, but it was instead the fact that scientific discovery wasn't part of the kind of warm world of human politics where people sort things out in rooms or in the city square, in elections, in the political process. But it was instead all mathematical. It's and a whole different language. Indeed, right. Yeah. And it's a language in which for Hannah Arendt, politics couldn't happen. She wrote, it was not pride or awe at the tremendousness of human power and mastery which filled the hearts of men, who now when they looked up from the earth toward the skies could behold there a thing of their own making. She's writing about Sputnik. But, she writes, relief about the first step toward escape from earth. She was really struck by how people were so anxious about the problems posed by science and technology that they hoped that through science and technology, we could kind of escape from the earth, escape from these problems, migrate out into the universe, into the stars. Mm -hmm. And a lot of thinkers from like science fiction writers like Arthur C. Clarke, you know, to people in science and technology fields and in the government were genuinely intrigued by the possibility that we could escape the kind of threat of nuclear annihilation by populating many worlds beyond our solar system even. So the question, what all this has to do with dolphins, begins to come up. And dolphins, in fact, through Leo Szilard, begin to form a kind of bridge between the Earth and the oceans and aliens and the possibility that there might be worlds out there for us to make contact with, to be in dialogue with, and maybe to learn from. That if we could have a dialogue with other creatures that share our habitat, mm -hmm. we, we could also develop a method of communicating with beings right. who don't even share the same earthly context. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, you have at the same time that Hannah Arendt is writing about the human condition and that Leo Szilard, this physicist, is imagining scientists in dialogue with dolphins solving our problems. You have a group of researchers of astrophysicists and physicists who are interested in finding ways to reach out and communicate with other worlds, with alien intelligence elsewhere in the universe. People like Carl Sagan, who's best remembered for the Cosmos TV series in the 80s, was a young astronomer in the early 60s who was very interested in the question of whether there was life elsewhere in the universe and how we could discover it, how we could make contact with it. Another somewhat less known physicist from the same time period Frank Drake came up with a series of equations for sort of estimating the amount of intelligent life that might be in the Milky Way, mm -hmm. for instance, or the universe at large. 
and they began a research program that we know today as SETI, or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And most people know it primarily as a kind of like a radio astronomy effort. They've got these big radio dishes that they that they use to scan the heavens for mm-hmm. pattern signals. Um, there was a movie called Contact a few years ago with Jodie Foster in it that was based on a novel by Carl Sagan about this program actually discovering something. Now, they haven't discovered anything yet. They keep saying that there's a lot of sky left to look at. Nonetheless, it was a program that began in this time, the early 60s, and it began specifically because these scientists were concerned that unless we made contact with life elsewhere, we might run out of options on the Earth. And that if we did manage to make contact with some civilization far more technologically advanced than our own, they could help us solve our problems. Now, this sounds all very science fictional now, but this was an earnest desire in the early 60s. And it was proposed that through dialogue with dolphins, we might begin to model what that exchange might look like. So this fiction that was written by Leo Zillard began to take shape in the real world, yeah, they actually yeah. get to pursue this kind of research. Indeed, yeah. In fact, Zillard's story was likely inspired by the research of yet another figure of this time, and really one of the most colorful figures in this cast of characters, and that's a guy named John Lilly. By the mid-50s, John Lilly was working with a lot of funding from the Defense Department, from the Navy in particular, on sort of acoustic properties of marine mammals. Interestingly, at about that time, people still thought of, and scientists in particular, still thought of the the world of whales and dolphins as a silent world. And it was really because of submarine warfare that these new tools and technologies were developed that allowed scientists for the first time to acoustically, sonically peer into the underwater world. And they discovered that it was a rich sonic environment and that much of that sound was being produced by these marine mammals. So... John Lilly, by the late 50s, is working on echolocation and the use of sound by by dolphins, the perception of sound by dolphins. But as he did this research, he began to be intrigued by the intelligence of these creatures. And very early in this program, it came to John Lilly that dolphins could stand in as kind of surrogates for extraterrestrial aliens. And he proposed this to folks in the SETI research program, like Frank Drake and Carl Sagan, who brought him into their program. In fact, they called themselves, throughout the the 60s, the Order of the Dolphin, this band of researchers who were interested in uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. Mm. They saw the dolphin as as the avatar for that extraterrestrial intelligence. And this begins to, like, layer what seems like one kind of level of pseudoscience on top of another. And, you know, by the 80s, this is a research agenda that can be easily parodied and you know, Douglas Adams, who wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, named one of his books So Long and Thanks for All the Fish because he imagines in that book the dolphins finally getting fed up with us and calling their alien intelligent friends to come and get them and leaving a message for us that says So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. But in the, in the early 60s, Lily's experiments with dolphin intelligence and dolphin behavior were being taken very seriously. At his kind of research station in the Bahamas, he built a house on the beach that was flooded. So the living room and the kitchen and the bedroom had three feet of water in it so that a dolphin could swim into the house. And he had a captive dolphin live there with a woman. It was an awful experiment, as it turned out. I mean, not only was it just horrid to live in three feet of water all the time yeah. for this woman... Uh, But this dolphin was intrusive and assaultive, and their relationship was a very fraught one. 
the dolphin isn't living as a domesticated creature. It sounds like it's living as an equal partner. The idea was that it would live as an equal partner, yeah. But in that question, you know, we uncover this whole world of ambiguity about what it means to be a domesticated animal or what it means to be a wild animal. And these are questions that stretch back to the Enlightenment at the very least, you know. Descartes called man the animal that thinks. And that was sort of a, a normative understanding of what differentiates us from the animal world for such a long time. Interestingly, in the mid-20th century, the question of our intelligence and its kind of the kind of devil's bargain that it represents, its kind of Promethean ambiguity, becomes really important to people. And dolphins become an interesting kind of symbolic alternative, a kind of model for what an intelligent creature that isn't fallen from grace might be like. Lauren Isley wrote a piece for Life magazine, I believe, where he talked about how lucky dolphins are that they don't have hands. The dolphin is this supremely intelligent creature, clearly as intelligent as us, a theory that is based on the, the mere fact that dolphins have brains about the same size as ours, larger than ours, but about the same size in proportion to their bodies as ours. So here's a creature that's as intelligent as us, but doesn't have hands to make things with. That's what really gets human beings into trouble, mm -hmm. is that we make stuff, and we make things like nuclear bombs, we make weapons. So the dolphin becomes this kind of ideal, you know, this kind of better version of us in a way. Not only supremely intelligent, but also kind of a wise creature. So is there a parallel with our explorations into artificial intelligence? Yeah, I think the parallel is a, is a profound one. You know, one of the parallel issues is the question of the anthropomorphic. In, in many ways, when we imagine artificial intelligence succeeding, we imagine something like a human intelligence being created. That becomes kind of the golden benchmark, and that's the benchmark of the, the, the Turing test, the famous proposition by Alan Turing that artificial intelligence could be deemed successful essentially if it managed to fool somebody into believing that it was another human being. And yet it's clear in the age of network computation that there are many, many ways in which machines can be intelligent, many ways in which you know, in pure computational power they far outstrip us already. Whether that eventuates in something like human intelligence is something that people are terribly interested in and concerned with. But whether it needs to or not entirely is, I think, remains an open question. And you see in these relationships with animals, the same question emerges again and again and again. A few years after Lily's experiments with dolphins, the scientific imagination turned to uh, non-human primates as the kind of scene of the encounter with non-humans and language. And you see a series of very strange experiments in trying to get um, chimpanzees and gorillas, lowland gorillas in particular, to learn sign language. Maybe the most famous of these was Nim Chimpsky, chimp that was raised in a household in the late 60s and early 70s and taught sign language, learned a great deal of sign language. But of course, you know, that encounter was one that was very problematic because he was still a chimp. You end up with a wild animal that speaks a little bit of human language that's dressed in diapers, dressed like a, a toddler, but, you know, has the strength of, like, four grown men. It sounds to me like the lesson in these examples, and this is the example of the, the woman and the dolphin as well, mm -hmm. is not so much that the creatures share a kind of common intelligence. It's that we are trying to socialize them. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's a trigger in the brain that... You just can't get past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's an ancient impulse in, in human beings to anthropomorphize, you know. And in many ways, in myth traditions and folktale traditions, 
animals are fully anthropomorphic and they participate in social life in the worlds imagined in myth. Humans who live in a kind of mythological life world, hunter-gatherers and pastoralists, often see those animals as fully participant in a social life. And in the modern era, you know, from the Enlightenment on, we sort of pushed animals out of our, our social sphere, relegated them to the level of machines. And in fact, you know, the Enlightenment imagined the animal as a kind of machine, just a very complicated machine, basically, but a machine. And then when we started to think about the question of animal intelligence, we brought those animals back into our world as machines, essentially, kind of divorced from their really, you know, particular, even unique qualities as different kinds of species, and demanded of them that they be more like us. I think we're doing similar things with technology, which as technology becomes more and more complicated, I think like animals, it kind of eludes the grasp of our metaphors increasingly. And seeing it as either on the one hand, a system of tubes, right? Or on the other extreme, the emergence of a kind of intelligent power and agency in its own right. I think we miss a lot of the grounded particularity of the technological systems that we're interacting with. Is there any kind of field of study of machine intelligence that kind of looks at it objectively, um, an anthropology of machines? It's a great question, and there are a number of perspectives from the social sciences and anthropology in particular. One of the most fruitful areas of that kind of inquiry comes out of the social sciences and it comes from, in particular, a researcher by the name of Bruno Latour, who's a French sociologist who began in the late 70s and early 80s with a lot of colleagues around the world to form a field called you know, Social Study of Science or Science, Technology, and Society. And they began to look at science sites of the creation of scientific knowledge and uh, the making of technology as kind of social situations and asking questions about what the people in those situations, scientists, uh, what they understood themselves to be doing and how they went about doing it. And they began to see laboratories, essentially, as big machines, machines in which humans are parts. They're pieces in cogs in those machines. And in a way, those larger systems of technology, of theory, of the literature from a given scientific discipline are all different actors in a big sort of dance or a big a game or a big kind of drama. So in that field of science, technology, and society, people have begun to look at machines as social creatures, in essence, as organisms, almost, that are bound up in social relations with people. Also in the philosophy of mind, the area of the philosophy of mind, um, there's a lot of discussion of the kind of powers and limits of uh, artificial intelligence. Philosophers like John Searle, famously John Searle, has articulated a series of thought experiments aimed at arguing that a machine can never be intelligent in the ways that human beings are. And the most famous of these uh, thought experiments is this Chinese room experiment in which Searle imagines a room and a worker in that room who doesn't know any Chinese, but has at his disposal a kind of manual for manipulating the symbols of Chinese, the written symbols of Chinese. So people can put messages into the room in Chinese, and this worker can look those symbols up, and the manual that he has at his disposal will allow him to answer those without actually understanding any Chinese. Hmm. So through a series of operations, this, this person in this room can generate a comprehensible response in Chinese. The question is, does that researcher then understand Chinese? 
does that room, can that room be said to be speaking Chinese? Hmm. And from Searle's perspective, the answer is no. Instead, a series of mechanical operations are, are being undertaken. And while some kind of communication might be taking place, the individual pieces of that system don't understand. Now, this has been a very controversial, remarkably productive thought experiment. Whole books have been written about this thought experiment, in fact. But it gets down to, for Searle, the question of syntax versus semantics. Now, syntax is a property that language has, human language has, but also computer languages have it. The, the kind of formal systems of symbols, the kind of rules of the game by which symbols are manipulated. Human language also has semantics, which is where we find meaning, which is where the kind of shades and differences and the connotations and allusions that can be made, that's where they live, is in semantics. Searle's argument is formal systems of communication that machines can manipulate have syntax, but they don't have semantics. And without that semantic set of semantic properties, however complex machines get, they'll never have that world of feeling and meaning that makes human intelligence unique. And interestingly, there's a lot of research in animal behavior that looks at animal intelligence and in many ways asks the same question of animal intelligence. Do animals have a semantic dimension to hmm. their cognitive capacity? Or are they more syntactical, essentially? Um, and there it are... a, It's a question of processing versus comprehension. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. We do you know, have this extra component of our cognitive life that is where a sense of the self emerges, consciousness, duration in time, all of these properties that seem to us in a kind of, you know, at first blush or in a kind of naive way, like they're integral to, to intelligence, that where a human degree of intelligence exists, these other things must exist as well. Well, there are many, you know, philosophers, animal behaviorists, and technologists who would argue that you can have supreme intelligence without necessarily having some of those other qualities. Others feel that once you get to a certain level of complexity, those properties emerge. So a philosopher like Daniel Dennett at Tufts is one who argues quite strenuously that once computers get complicated enough, once there are enough connections made um, at, at a level, a kind of order of magnitude similar to the human brain, then those properties of consciousness, of feeling, of experience and, and enduring experience will emerge for machines. Nobody knows the answer yet. That's a great place to, to leave off right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we questioned good. the uh, We questioned the very nature of what it means to be human in this podcast. So <laughs> that's something we don't do often. Um, thank you very much, Matthew. Yeah, you're, you're welcome, Dan. Thank you. Find out more about today's episode, including a cool picture of a dolphin, at blogs.law.harvard.edu slash mediaberkman. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Berkman. Now, hey, are you busy this summer? The Berkman Center, including this very podcast, is looking for talented folks who want to spend the summer at Harvard, helping us explore the frontiers of technology and society. So if you're a researcher, writer, lawyer, media producer, or just somebody who's interested, student or not, we might be able to use you. There's a link to apply in today's show notes, and applications for the internship are due February 16th. This episode of Radio Berkman was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, with Gretchen Weber and edited by Carrie Tian from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 